Hello, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. It's been some time since the last time I ministered the Word of God. So I've been in the normal mode of my three hours that I set aside for an hour and a half of prayer, an hour writing my book, and a half hour meditating in the Word of God. But this hour and a half here, I just want to, again, begin to minister the Word of God. And I do want to get into a consistency of doing this. There's been a lot of pressure at this time to get certain things done for the business that I'm doing in order to have the freedom to have more time to be given to the work of the ministry. I want to just share some of the things that God has been saying this past week through various passages of scripture that I have received as I've sought for him to lead me through the casting of lots and through receiving any impressions of leading by the Holy Spirit. So I want to first of all just briefly go over the passages I received in the last week since around Saturday, today being Thursday. And I just make brief notes on these various passages of Scripture. In that half hour, I just make brief notes. And so what I'm going to be sharing here is from those brief notes. Nothing prepared except that I have some notes to go on from the various passages of Scripture that I've received. On Saturday, I received Luke chapter 9. And just sum that whole passage up with a brief paragraph, or sentence actually, there is the price of total death to the things of our life in this world to enter the revelation of the kingdom of God, which is needed in order to minister the word of God and reveal the glory of God in miracles and healing and deliverance. On Monday, I received Isaiah chapter 63. And I said this concerning this passage before I get in, I should add, to those that are new to a particular leading of the Holy Spirit to share. I'm just giving a brief overview. There is a day and a time of vengeance for God against the multitudes on earth that are maturing in rebellion against God. It is God's fury against sin that keeps him from corruption and that keeps us from corruption. God is long-suffering, but there comes a point where he becomes an enemy of those that refuse to repent. And in verse 16, starting there, we have a verse that says this in Isaiah 63, 16 and 17. Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. O Yahweh, art our father. O God, O Lord, 
Art Our Father. I happen to have that copied in a translation that just gives the Hebrew word instead of the um, English word, which in this case would have been, O oh Lord, you are our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting, O oh Yahweh, or O oh Lord, why hast thou made us to err from our ways? and hardened our heart from thy fear. Return for thy servant's sake, the tribes of thine inheritance. I want to emphasize, thou art our father, in this particular passage, but I will do that later when I go under God's leading into sharing this in more detail. On Tuesday, I received Jeremiah 3 by the casting of Lot. And there was some particular passages of scripture that stood out in Jeremiah chapter 3. It says in verse 3 to 4, pardon me, 4 to 5 of Jeremiah 3, Wilt thou not from this time cry unto me, my father? Thou art the guide of my youth. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldst. But I said, this is going to verse 19 of the same chapter, How shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, Thou shalt call me my father and shalt not turn away from me. So again, Two days in a row, there's an emphasis from these passages in the Old Testament on perceiving God as our Father. And there's a great mystery and a secret in that that needs to be understood. Yesterday, Wednesday, I received Revelation chapter 11. By this time, the world has come to a place where they are very deceived and hardened against the truth of the gospel and against God. This is to the degree of seeking to kill those that preach the gospel. This reaches critical mass and then the Lord returns to show no mercy. Very brief summary of Revelations chapter 11. Now I'm just going to take a quick sip of water here for a moment. so much for the introduction. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 63. I just want to sense what God would be saying by his spirit. And we will make this the theme passage and I will begin to read from this particular passage. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trod in the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. And I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. 
and I looked and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury. I will bring down their strength to the earth. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them, and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore was he turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him, that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm? dividing the water before them, to make himself an everlasting nay, that led them through the deep as an horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble. As a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and behold the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledges not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer, thy name is from everlasting. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy way? and hardened our heart from thy fear. Return for thy servants' sake the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while our adversaries have trodden down. Thy sanctuary, we are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. I just want to say that I will seek now to be in the spirit of prophecy that is through worshiping the Lord and being conscious of being in his presence and hearing what he would be saying by his spirit to you as an individual and to the body of Christ at this particular time. One of the things that stands out immediately in this passage is the zeal of God. The zeal of his being of love that is manifested in anger. And it says in verse 6, I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury. 
and I will bring down their strength to the earth. The question is, who is this that comes from Edom? Why, there's blood on his garments, and yet he's glorious in his peril, traveling in the greatness of his strength. It is the Lord that speaks in righteousness that's mighty to save. But the question is, why is his garments filled with blood? It's because he's trod in the winepress alone. And of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Why? Because the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. So at the very day when God judges the wicked, it is also the time when God brings redemption and deliverance to the righteous, to those that have been brought forth anew as his sons, as his children, as his daughters. And he says, and I looked and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and it was my fury that upheld me. And this is an understanding I want to bring out. There is a misconstrued understanding of love these days. The love of God has integrity. His love is a consuming fire of love that will not tolerate anything that is contrary to love. Love is that quality that is always choosing the highest good over any more immediate fulfillment or gratification, which implies that any choice that would be less for, for an immediate, more immediate satisfaction would contain corruption and would be less than God, for God has no corruption in his being. His being has a love that is always choosing the highest good, that has complete integrity to execute judgment on anything that would be less. That is the holiness of his being, also the defensive, which can be defined as the defensive aspect of God in his love. God is love, and his love has fury against what is contrary to love. That fury was so great that it upholds him from the compromise of corruption. It is because God is holy that he is God. For if within God there was corruption, he could not contain unlimited life and power that would go on and ever enlarge in greater and greater goodness. There would be a destructive principle 
which is basically an observed law of science throughout the whole universe known as the second law of thermodynamics. That is basically the observation that everything in the universe tends to go in the direction of disorder when left on its own. And when we choose our own ways, we are left on our own. We are not remaining in God. We are not abiding in God. And when that happens, the choices that we make are destructive. And eventually they result in our own destruction. But God is so pure in his love that his love has a purity and an integrity that will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to his love. That is why in the word of God it says that he is a consuming fire. That he is a jealous God. That he's a consuming fire. It describes this in Hebrews. It describes this in various places in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it says that knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And that is something that is lost in our perception of who God is in this day and age when there is such an a tendency to have a distorted, idolatrous image of God in his holiness. That is, in the integrity of his love. And it is this love that is so pure that will not tolerate corruption, that has such a hate for corruption. When there's corruption, it means there's eventual death. When there is corruption, basically the second law of thermodynamics, the result is that there can be no goodness. There can be no wholeness. It is out of the holiness of God that there is wholeness. The opposite of the holiness of God is this corruption that can be like a little teeny black hole in outer space, but it keeps pulling everything into it in a destructive way, and it's never satisfied. In its choices, it is always grasping for fulfillment in that which is independent from the source of fulfillment that is only found in God. For we were created by the Creator to only find our fulfillment in the purpose for which He created us, which was for His pleasure, as it says in the Word of God, for all things were and are created for His pleasure. In Revelations chapter 4, the last verse, there's a verse there that says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. And it is only in God that we find total fulfillment and satisfaction. But it involves coming to the place of recognizing and rightly choosing to recognize who God is in the reality of who he is. Not an intellectual choice, but a choice from our heart. 
to not rebel against the consequences of God's holiness or of the integrity of his love that requires judgment. When there is a deep turning of the heart to recognize the utter glory of God in his holiness, firstly, the result is an awareness of how nothing we are apart from God. In fact, how less than nothing we are in the sense that the corruption that is in us apart from God, there is that corruption. How we are deserving of his judgment. And that that judgment is totally good and righteous. That that judgment we deserve that we deserve eternal separation, which would mean eternal torment. We deserve hell, which is a less, it's a recognition that we are even less than nothing apart from God, which would be an existence of torment, would be worse than having nothingness. So we recognize we ch the fear of God is a choice to first of all recognize God in his holiness. In a right way that acknowledges that he is holy because that holiness will not tolerate corruption. And precisely because of that, Within God, there is complete wholeness. And out of that wholeness, ultimate beauty that can go on in creativity in greater and greater realms of fulfillment and enlargement that are ever enlarging as time goes on. So out of the holiness of God, we recognize the wholeness of God, and we recognize the wholeness that we can have if we can be reconciled to God. If we choose to be reconciled to God. And out of that, we come, into a, we come to a place, a beginning, to have a fury against those things in our lives that have been so deceptive and destructive and deserving of hell. Because we've seen how beautiful and glorious God is and His holiness. And of course, that is the foundation from which God can express something that is even greater than this perfection of his love, and that is that it is expressed in its perfection as ultimate. On the foundation of his holiness, the integrity of his love, that is. It is expressed as ultimate. 
in that there is such a perfection within the being of God's love that he could actually forgive us without inviolating the, this integrity of his love. How could he do that? Well, I'm sure that they recognized the holiness of God from the time of Adam and realized that for God to have the power that could actually forgive us without violating the integrity of his love meant that there was within the being of God such an ultimate perfection of love that he could actually become a perfect sacrificial atoning sacrifice himself for us. In other words, that he could suffer more than us, than a mere creature, and humble himself more than us, a mere creature. That he could actually come in a human body and experience temptation as, as us, and yet maintain his oneness with who he is, which is God that is holy. Maintain that oneness and never fall prey to that temptation. And actually, because of that, be a perfect representation that could become and fulfill the requirement to be that necessary perfect atoning sacrifice. For it says in the Old Testament that even if I gave my own body or my children as a sacrifice, it wouldn't be enough to atone for our sins. I don't know exactly where that passage is right now, but it's somewhere in Isaiah, I believe. God is wanting us to know this love that is not only so pure in its integrity, but so transcendent in its mercy that God himself has within his being such a perfection of love that he did in reality in this time and space become a perfect atoning sacrifice in the full expression of himself who is Jesus Christ on who as it were took the first man Adam and through resisting temptation and living a perfect life in union with God the Father as it were took that first man Adam and carried him through his obedience to the cross and nailed him on the cross. And as you know, the whole human race is and yet it came through Adam. And so we were in Adam. And through Christ's obedience, we as a human race can now choose to take the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ, and receive his power to forgive us of our sins. And that gospel was preached from the very beginning of time. That God is holy. And yet that he has the power to forgive. In fact, it says in Revelations 18, that Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Even before the world was created, there was that perfection in the being of God that was more than just a capacity. It was an actual reality that he was already a perfect atoning sacrifice, that that perfection was already a reality within his being, that it was as if it was done. And since God transcends time and space and sees the end from the beginning, it 
had already happened. But it was carried out in our time and space realm. But our time and space realm is held within infinity. Because God is beyond time and space. And so it was a reality within the being of God to have the power to forgive sin from the very time of Adam and Eve. The only difference between the time now after the cross and the time then is that then the soul and the spirit could not be cleansed until after Christ died on the cross which allowed for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and also for being able to come before the very throne of God with our soul and spirit because of the soul and spirit being cleansed after the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't want to get distracted from this issue of having that hate for unrighteousness, that hate for what is contrary to love that always chooses the highest lasting good, which is God, who is the highest lasting good, who is ever enlarging in his creativity unto, an ultimate, unto ultimate purpose. And it is that he would have a bride that is married to him and that goes and shares his creativity in greater and greater enlargement of creative realms of fulfillment that go on forever and ever as the universe continues to expand with his kingdom and his glory. God wants us to know him in his holiness and that means that we need to know what it is to not rebel against the consequences that we observe happen around us of suffering but recognize that those consequences are required because that is only what will fulfill God's purpose, which is far more than all of these things as sawdust is to the building of a house. All those that choose of their own free will to rebel against God's love who has provided forgiveness through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and who they recognize had the power to forgive and had that ultimate quality within his being even before that time. We are those that need to come to that place time and time again of brokenness and contrition before God. because we see afresh who he is. There's a passage that says, whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be broke, taken away. 
The hardness of our heart is what veils us from perceiving who God is. And that is because it is so easy to fall prey to that hardness when we do not practice the genuine fear of God and growing in it. It is a message that God is wanting to give in these last days that we return to the genuine fear of God. It is then that as we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, we can walk in him. The word of God commands us that as, we, as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him in Colossians. How did we receive Christ? It was because we first chose to genuinely fear God. We were brought to that place like the prodigal of seeing the absolute undoneness of our own life, maybe because of the consequences of our own wrong choices that have cornered us like the prodigal son. To see the utter loathing condition of our own soul and of our own circumstances. And we are brought to that place where we are cornered to be open to what could only be possibly trustworthy and ultimately trustworthy. In fact, there is nothing more ultimately trustworthy than what I'm describing. A quality of being that will not tolerate corruption and yet is so transcendent in love that the Creator Himself suffers more than us, the mere creature, and humbles Himself more than us, the mere creature, so that we can be reconciled to Him and be part of His corporate bride. There is not a more glorious and ultimately trustworthy thing that can be described in this quality of being. And we need to therefore be careful that we don't fall into the trap that Cain fell into, where he began to be alienated in his heart towards God and by seeing the consequences of the curse that happened. And so he became distant and he distorted, had a distorted view of God as a dictator that required submission and lost sight of the fact that the holiness of God is good. Because it will not tolerate corruption, it means that there is total wholeness of God and that we, when we are brought in, into reconciliation with God, we can begin to experience that wholeness enter our being and conquer those little black holes or that black, big black hole that is like a black hole in outer space that is destructive in our being, that is a hell in our heart that causes hell around us in the lives of others. A corruption in our heart that corrupts others and leads them in the path, a path of destruction and torment and suffering rather than wholeness and beauty. That is why in this passage in Isaiah, the next thing it says after he's talking about his, the fury of God is, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord. It's because there's no difference between the fury of God and the loving kindness of God. The loving kindness of God requires that he does not tolerate sin and that we have such a conformity to, have, to his love that we have the same hate towards the corruption 
the, those things, that, that rebellion against the holiness of God that is in people, that is in the adversary. That is what brings us into a deep remaining abiding relationship with God where we continue to remain in him or abide in him. As Christ said, we are to abide in him even as the vine abides. Even as the branches abide in the vine, we are to remain or abide in him. In this passage of scripture, we continue to see in Isaiah 63, as we, we go down, God's patience towards the children of Israel as they're in the wilderness. It says in all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He redeemed them out of Egypt. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. This is verse 9. But what did they do? They rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. But then it says, he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, where is he that brought them out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit, actually in the, in the original here, within their camp? It could possibly mean, I was looking at other translations, it could also possibly mean within, them, within those that were his. That led them by the right hand of Moses, with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. So he's showing all of these things that led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble. As a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. But then he comes to the present state of Israel. And he wants to see God's same zeal come again. Where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bells and thy mercies toward? Are they restrained? He's wondering why Israel finds itself in such a state that the former glory of God being with them and doing wonders of deliverance is no longer there. That's why in the last verse it says, we are thine, thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name, but you did rule over us. Therefore, surely God, you can bring us back into even a closer relationship with you. That's what the cry is in, this, in Isaiah's heart here as he Pens out this under the Holy Spirit, causing him to write it. Here's the secret. 
Doubtless thou art our father, though even if Abraham didn't know about who we were and Israel didn't acknowledge us, you are still our father. And so is our father. He's asking the question. He asked this question. Oh, Lord, art our father. Oh, Lord, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. Oh, Lord, why hast thou made us to err from our ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? You see the secret here to overcoming the state that they are in. Isaiah recognizes it's because their heart became hard and the reason their heart became hard is because they lost the fear of God and the fear of God is that choice that is more than just a choice even and is certainly more than an intellectual scent. It is the turning, it is the choice to turn the heart, to recognize who God is, first of all in his holiness and out of that, to recognize God who God is in the greatness of his mercy to forgive us of his goodness. That is the secret to being delivered from the air of our own ways. It is to become those that learn to remain in him, to abide in him. That means learning to wait on him as Isaiah, the book of Isaiah emphasizes so strongly that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I don't have time in this passage or the stuff in front of me to give you the details of the meaning of the word wait. But basically, this meaning of this word wait has the understanding of collecting, like the pool of water collecting. It has also the understanding of a rope being twined so that it becomes strong. It has the understanding of being still, of holding back our own tendencies to self-initiate things, of ceasing from our own tendencies to be presumptuous and go ahead and do our own thing and do our own works. It is the opposite of the word. It, it is similar to the word Sabbath in that the word Sabbath means cessation. But the word weight has the understanding of that collecting of God's life in us by learning to be still and knowing that he is God. This involves spending quality time in prayer and in worship, being still and being in awe of who God is, just dwelling on the beauty of his holiness and the awesomeness of his holiness and the severity of his holiness and the greatness of his mercy to you as an individual so that all of the pain and the suffering that you see around you, you do not begin to become like Cain, who developed its distorted view of God as a dictator. And I will briefly mention here that the renowned archaeologist David Rowell 
If you read his works, he points out in some of his writings, I think you can find this on a site called Red Moon, um, what is it called? Red Moon Rising, something to that effect. I think that's it, Red Moon Rising, if you Google it. He mentions the discoveries in the first city after the flood. And this man's not a Christian, but he finds all this evidence and shows the strong indicators that before the flood, the city of Cain had an idolatrous perception of God, and that city had an idolatrous worship, and that the first city after the flood, Arudu, was recognized. They found, they knew geographically after the flood where it was from the various landmarks and mountains and so on. And so they established that first city there with all the writings of the clay tablets and all that's there. And they find out that this city, in, in a short period of time, starts to worship the moon god, which is still one god. It's still monotheistic, but it's a distorted view of God as a dictator, and they had to offer their own children as sacrifices and so on. And then from there, it goes to the Ur of Chaldees, where Abraham came out. And that's the idolatry he came out of. It was a monotheism that was a distorted view of God. And that monotheism then migrated to Babylonia, and David Royal points this out in his archaeology. And from there it migrated to Arabia, where it was formed around that black rock with, what is it, 120 gods they have. One of them was called Allah, which means the God, but was referring to the same God, the moon God, was who they called Allah, the moon God. And of course, to this day, they still walk, march around that rock that had those 120 gods, which, of course, later on, uh, was they designated that one God as their God and even denounce the moon god, but actually they're still marching around the same thing. And there's the same perception. But that perception is also a principle that is in many believers. Some of them have a tendency towards God being viewed as a dictator. Others have a tendency to view God the other way as a God whose love has no integrity and that does not tolerate and that allows anyone to come before him and be accepted of him. Both are a distorted view of God. We have a false grace gospel that does not acknowledge the holiness of God and the need for a true heart belief in God, not a mere intellectual assent but a true turning of the heart in recognition of who God is. You can't really believe from your heart in God if you do not even perceive the reality of who he is or choose to perceive the reality of who he is in his holiness and in the greatness of his loving kindness and mercy to have the power to forgive us of sin. And so Christ says, Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out, because whoever comes to him can only come to him if they are perceiving him. For if they are not perceiving him, they are not coming to him. They are coming to a false perception of God, which is an idolatrous God and another God, a counterfeit Jesus Christ. We come to him 
in acknowledgement of his great loving kindness that he would forgive us so much that he will not tolerate sin. And we become conformed to the same love that he is as God, where we hate what God hates and we love what God hates. That is what God is seeking to form in us. It requires that we wait on him, that we become like that rope more and more as we learn to be still and know he is God. As it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, be not presumptuous or hasty to become come before God, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. And we learn to come and hallow the name of God. That's the only way we can really pray to God, is when, as Christ said, when you pray, the first thing you should say is, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy be thine. We begin to enter into his presence in utter awe and humility and reverence, recognizing the holiness of God. And it is out of that that we enter his presence and we can begin to pray, thy kingdom come. It is when we become conscious of ascending into the holiness of God on our knees through waiting on him, being conscious of being in his holy presence, seated in heavenly places in Christ and having fellowship, reciprocating his love, that we enter into the place of having his heart so that we mourn over what he mourns over and we rejoice over what God rejoices over so that we then can receive the seal of God on our foreheads because we are walking and living a life that is holy and pure before him conformed to his being of who he is as it were, the ultimate positive and negative of the universe. Because the first symbol, which is a straight line, represents cutting off all that is contrary to his law. It represents foundation that will not tolerate corruption, which is his love. And then there's the crossing out of that symbol, which is a horizontal line which forms the symbol of the cross, which reveals the ultimate positive, which is his goodness, that comes out of his holiness. The cross is formed by crossing over the foundational symbol, the cutting off symbol. And it is the more and more that we enter in to first the negative and the positive, that there's the flow of life or electricity as it's illustrated in nature, of his spirit, of his glory in us, that causes us to bear fruit because his light fills us and that light has the effect of expanding and bearing fruit and causing other seeds that were shells and latent and didn't know the truth to spring forth and sprout and bear fruit. I don't know what the time is because I get carried away preaching. I'm going to just take a quick look and see more or less what the time is. And I just want to go on and touch on the few other passages now. 
The next day, I got another chapter that was on the same theme. It was about knowing God as our Father. And I said this about it. And again, I want to repeat the verse. Again, in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 4 to 5, Wilt thou not from this time cry unto me, My Father, thou art the guide of my youth, Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldst. And that's he speaking about the children of Israel. But what he's saying here is you need to cry unto me and see me as, my, as your father, as the guide of your youth. And then he goes on in Jeremiah 3 verse 19 and he says after seeing and describing the total apostate state of Israel he says this but I said how shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land how am I going to do this when you're in such a corrupt state Israel a goodly heritage of the hosts of nations and I said this is how I'll do it I'll bring you to the place where you will call me my father and shall not turn away from me. The secret was in recognizing God, firstly, as their Father. Remember that Christ himself said, that anyone that has been taught and learned of the Father comes unto me. The only way we could come into a genuine relationship with Christ is when we first have been taught and learned by the Father as to who the Father is. It is learning the, who God is in His holiness that leads us to realize our need of His mercy. And it is there that we have the revelation of His mercy which reveals His being of mercy, which is the revelation of Yeshua to us personally. And that was the revelation that King David had and that they had from the time of Adam and Eve where they entered into such a close relationship with God like Enoch, who was so close in his relationship with God that he was translated into heaven itself. That was because it was he was translated from this time and space realm where his soul could not be cleansed into the time into that realm beyond time and space where it is as it, where it already happened that Jesus Christ had died on the cross and it was always a reality in God's being that he had the perfection and is the perfection so that it was already done in that realm that transcends time and space which is the office of God and his government as the Father. God and his government as the Son is the full expression of God, the Father, into the time and space realm, into the creation realm. And God, the Holy Spirit, is the omnipresence of the Father and of the Son filling all dimensions of existence with his creative acts and power. 
where he can appear in personage in thousands of places at the same time and be totally personal because there is no ending or beginning of time. It can go on forever and so there can be a thousand people praying to him and he is totally personal to them and revealed to him as the Father. The Father that is severe but is filled with mercy. And so I said this in regards to Jeremiah. It is in acknowledging Jehovah, our Elohim, as the Father. Yes, Jehovah, or Yahweh, Elohim, as the Father, the Almighty Ones, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that are the Son and the Holy Spirit are in the Father, acknowledging Elohim as the Father that will turn Israel from their backsliding. A father shows and executes authority and severe consequences, but also shows great mercy and love. It is the failure to see God's great mercy and love behind the holiness of his love and required judgment that distorts one to an idolatrous perception of God as only a taskmaster that requires submission. This is a failure to choose to fear God, which is a failure to choose to rightly recognize God to be totally pure and thus good in his holiness. In the recognition of God's mercy is the recognition of God as the Father. And through this also, God is the Son. And so as we are taught and we learn who the Father is, we are drawn unto the revelation of God's being and His mercy and His love, which is the revelation of Yeshua HaMashiach, which was from the very beginning of time. From the time of Adam and Eve to now, this gospel has been preached. It has been fully manifest from the resurrection of Jesus Christ on in this time and space realm. And the question is, are we going to allow our hearts to be hardened in these last days? Or are we going to pay the price to seek him until the hardness is broken and we have the revelation, the ever-enlarging, ever-increasing revelation that changes us from glory to glory. We, as beholding in, in the glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. That involves the deep turning of our heart through seeking Him in prayer, through learning to be like the publican that cried out and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and would not as much as lift up his hand to heaven, but turned with all his heart and smote his breast and cried out and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Revelation 11 was given to me yesterday, which describes a time where the world becomes so hard that they rejoice over the two prophets that have been prophesying and have them killed through the Antichrist, but they rise from the dead. And then God's vengeance comes on the heathen, and, is, and he returns to set up his millennial kingdom on the earth. What a wonderful time. We are so soonly approaching that time. Are you going to be walking as a mirror? 
Christian, like the unwise virgins, are you going to be having a heart that is totally in love with God, that is totally caught up with Him, so that you hate what He hates? Remember that all I received this week, what I received, that was Revelation 11 at the beginning of this week, or at the end of this week, but at the beginning of this week, I received Luke chapter 9, and it would probably be good to go back there right now and just emphasize what God was saying there in Luke chapter 9. And so I want to point out some of the things that the Lord said here. God, in this passage, does some amazing miracles. John the Baptist is beheaded, and so on. He does the multiplying of the loaves. But then there comes this point, in verse, starting in verse 18, And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself and be cast away? What the Lord is saying here. is that we need to have such a deep love relationship with Him that we can deny our own desires and literally follow Him to a cruel death in martyrdom. And that it shouldn't be just something that we view happens at the end of our life but that it is a daily thing, that in our lives we have such a relationship with Him that we are losing our life that is not in Him, that is not of Him, that would stand against His purposes and plan, because our purposes and plan are to gain the temporal things of this world. And we can justify it even with scriptures, that we need to do this and do that for the kingdom of God, and it can be our own plans that have our own self-gratifications and interests in the motive. And so he says here, what is a man advantage if he gain the whole world and lose himself? Or be a castaway who, for whoever shall be ashamed of me and of my word. Truly, if we're in love with God, we're not ashamed of the persecution and the humiliation that we'll receive because our identity is no longer found in our friends and in the things of this world and of people speaking well of us. 
it is in being accepted of him, of being accepted of the Father when our Father and our Mother forsake us. And he goes on in this passage of Luke and he emphasizes again in this passage of Luke chapter 9 saying in verse 22 the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day and he said to them all if any man will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever will save his life shall lose it but whoever will lose his life for my sake the same shall save strange this is something I read earlier in this passage it's being repeated I don't know how that happened maybe I somehow maybe it is twice it must be twice in this passage I thought but anyhow there it is again and of course after this they have this tremendous revelation of the transfigure of Christ transfiguration of Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration. And then they find out after that a very great humiliation of not having the power to cast out this demon because of their lack of faith. And he emphasizes in verse 44, let these things sink down into your ears for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of man. But they understood not this saying and it was hid from them that they perceived it not and they feared to ask him of that say. And we also fear to face the consequences sometimes of the price of following Christ, but we should not fear. We should rejoice that we can love God, that we can find our life in him, that we can lose the life that was not life, to find the life that is really our life, and our meaning and fulfillment in him. And so the Lord takes a little child and sets him in their midst. Because they were reasoning who should be the greatest. See, they thought they were going to be great for God, but they didn't realize they were seeking their own and not his. That they were deceived to seek their life instead of his life. Instead of learning to lay that down. And so he sets a child in their midst. And he says, whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. It is when we humble ourselves as a little child. And that comes out of recognizing the reality of who God the Father is in his holiness. God the Son is in his holiness. God the Holy Spirit is in his holiness and in the greatness of his love and mercy and begin to reciprocate that in a life of prayer. He goes on and he emphasizes it time and time again. You know not what manner of spirit you're of. They're calling for fire to come down from heaven. There they're not perceiving the greatness of God's mercy towards them, or they would not have been so quick in their spirit to want to show judgment on those that did not know the truth. And he says again to them, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. 
And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. This is quite amazing. He can't even go. Well, maybe he was wanting to stay until his father passed away. And the Lord's saying, No, you got to be willing to leave your father even now. And also to another, he says, I will follow thee. But he says, let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home. Jesus said unto no man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. He knows that if he went back there and bid farewell to them, they, he would become involved and they would convince him not to follow Christ. So he's saying, no man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. In this case, the man shouldn't even go back, because they would try to persuade him. And the Lord is saying, you have to be willing to be misunderstood. You have to have such a love for me that it causes you to have such a hate. He that hateth his life, hateth his mother and father. A hate in context of a love for God, a hate for that which stands against his purposes that we find so often comes through our closest friends doesn't mean that we don't love them. We do love them the most in the natural. But that that is submitted to God. And God is calling us to come into this conformity. That is his message to the body of Christ. Get ready to put on the full armor of God. Choose to fear God. Choose to be strong and courageous. Choose to be conformed to love what God loves and hates what God hates to such a degree of fury that it swallows up all the corruption that is in your being that is contrary to his purpose, that works against you. Our greatest enemy is often our own selves. And we need to acknowledge that. And we can do that by having a heart that is open to reproof before God and before those that God uses to reprove us. The evidence of genuine conversion is a heart that is open to the light, that comes to the light to have its deeds revealed whether they are of God or not. That way we are transformed from glory to glory. And we will come to that place where after we have suffered a while, he will strengthen, establish, and settle us into his purposes and his plan. Then he can entrust us even with the material things, knowing that our heart is not in them. It is in his kingdom. And those material things can be used for his glory and for his purposes. This is the time of Jubilee, and God is bringing us to the place of entrustment, which is the place of the genuine fear of God, where there is total abandonment to the love of God. total rest and trust in God to deliver us and meet our needs because we are seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Thank you for listening to this message.